Start off again as we have been with First uh, John chapter three, starting verse one. It says, "See what marvelous love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called God's children, and that is what we are. For this reason, the world does not recognize us because it did not know Him. Dear friends, we are now God's children, but what we are to be in the future has not yet been revealed, not fully." We know that when Christ appears, reappears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And every man who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself so as to be as pure as he is. Now, we realize that we need to be focused more on the return of the Lord. Uh, the apostles spoke a lot about it, uh, encouraging the church to think about it long for it, anticipate it, uh, because it does two indispensable things that we've covered so far in the Christian life. It has a purifying effect on us, and the other thing is that it offers us great hope. The Bible talks about the return of the Lord is our great hope. It's one of our great hopes, and really, really all of our great hopes are all culminated in the person of Christ. All of them are. So, uh, and, 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 you know, it's... It's the language of, of relationship, and so therefore, theologically, it doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. Jesus is revealed to me even now by the work of the Holy Spirit, and as he's revealed to me, I'm able to be transformed into his image. And so a little bit of this process happens from day to day that will happen when he arrives all at once. Amen? So it's a progressive work. It's all about having him revealed to us. And us taking on his likeness, us taking on our nature, his nature is the, the singular, the great hope of every believer is that one day we will be completely and entirely like him. Now, that does not mean you, of course, and you know this, but you don't lose your individuality. You don't use your personality. You don't lose the things that make you uniquely who you are, but your character is like him and and you become as incorruptible and undefiled and as pure as he is. Your motives become pure, you know, finally, once for all, and, uh, and so in that respect, we are able, therefore, to have perfect union with him and interaction with him because there's nothing in us at that point that walks in disagreement with him. And that's the great hope of the believer. So every time we really read about our hope, or especially our great hope, it's always in one way or another tethered to that reality, whether it is moment by moment as Jesus is being formed in me, because Christ in me is my hope of glory, Right. Ultimately, even that statement alone in Scripture is talking about the final day when the fullness of his glory is manifest in me. But it's also a truth that it happens day by day, moment by moment, from glory to glory, even as working by the working of the Spirit of the Lord. So, so you know, that, that's where it gets a little, it can get a little tricky, but really, when you think, again, if you think about it in terms of relationship, it becomes very easy to grasp. Um, now, so it has a purifying effect, and it offers us great hope, something to look forward to, you know. Um, if you, you know, I, I know that it's human nature that if you've got something that you are looking forward to, I'm not talking about something that you know is coming that you may or may not be looking forward to. I'm talking about something that, that is not only in your future, 
but it's something that you're anticipating with great joy, right? That kind of thing, when it's in front of you, it has a preparatory effect on you. You find yourself kind of getting ready for it, right? And that's what this is talking about. It's a very, very natural thing. As we are constantly thinking about and pondering and, and relishing the idea that literally at any moment he could arrive, it has this, you're packing your bags kind of mentality. You're getting everything in order. You're you're, you're getting to where you need to be, and it's not a work. It's just like if you're planning on, on if you've got a, you know, something you're greatly anticipating, you find yourself getting ready over a period of time, and it's not a work, it's a joy. Yeah, Terry, uh-huh. Just getting those light bulbs. The, the analogy of the bridegroom and the bride in this scenario is, mm -hmm. is really just so perfect when you go the whole distance with it because it is that. That's one of the biggest things a person plans for in their whole life. Mm -hmm. their, their marriage, their wedding ceremony, their marriage yeah. together, their life together. Um, and then also, as you were talking about, that hope of of us becoming so much like him and so much in union with him. It really is like someone who has saved themselves for marriage and yeah. that is what they look one of the things they look greatly forward to is finally one. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. You know, it just really is that perfect analogy of yeah. what we're anticipating. Absolutely. And and also including with the whole thing of a marriage is that in marriage, there's a lot of prep work. <laughs> there's a ton of prep work. And uh, and that could be, if it were on any other topic, if it was regarding any other thing, it could become a serious drudgery. But the thing that makes it lighthearted and makes it uh, uh, something that even when you get to the very the day of, if everything isn't perfect, you just throw up your hands and you don't care anymore, it's because you're just so enraptured with the person you're going to be united with that all the work leading up to this was as if it were nothing, right? What did Paul say? He said, all the suffering we're going through isn't even worthy to be compared with that, amen? So yeah, it, it actually is. You're right, a very good analogy. So Now the last two weeks we looked at Romans 8 and the progressive work of God in our lives as we learn to walk in the Spirit, by fixing our attention on God's Word. We spent a little bit of time with that last week. The, the how-to of walking in the Spirit is fix your eyes on the Word of God with your helper. Not independent of your helper, but with your helper. If you fix your eyes on just the Word of God and your helper is not with you, it will become a drudgery. It will become a checkoff list. It will become the law to you. You will literally, though you're in Christ, you will place yourself back underneath a set of rules. Where God the whole time right now is, remember what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews? It says, you've not come to the mountain that shook and that, that had thick darkness on it and all that. Remember when, the, the, when God met with Israel in the wilderness, just a, a three months in, and he came down on top of the mountain. They were terrified and they withdrew from the mountain. And he said, you, know, you haven't come to that mountain. Because the end result of that mountain was separation. They drew away from God. And God said, okay, okay, you don't want to talk to me? Here's a book. Learn about me right? And so, and so they were put underneath a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and all that kind of stuff. And that became a drudgery to them. And, and it was really, in some respects, intended to be. Because like, you know, if you're not willing to enter into union with me, then the only other option you have available to you, other than complete spiritual death and ruin, is to at least try to become like me through some form of dedication, commitment, and trying harder. 
And God intended that that be something that just wore them out to the point where when Christ came, they would literally collapse in his arms, so to speak, right? And, uh, and so now you and I, he says, you know, in, in Hebrews, you haven't come to that mountain, but you have come to the living God. They came to a mountain where God came down on top of it in a thick cloud, lightning running along the ground and the earth quaking. And I guarantee it was a pretty terrible sight. But and intimidating to say the least. He said, But you haven't come to the mountain. You've come to the God that was on the mountain, right? And to an innumerable company of hosts that, uh, that have all been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and have entered into union with God. You've come to this, amen? And because of that, that union that you now have, that you're no longer given a, a checkoff list. You've been given one third of the Godhead as part of your down payment of the fullness of your salvation, which is astounding when you think about it. Because God, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, you know, when when we think of our inheritance, when in natural, in, in the natural, when we think of our inheritance, we can't think of stuff. Because you can't inherit non-stuff, you inherit stuff, right? But when God gives inheritance, he gives people. That's what he gives. So the the down payment of our inheritance with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. He was the down payment, the surety that the rest is coming. So if the down payment was a third of the Godhead, I guess the rest of my inheritance is the other two thirds of the Godhead. I'm inheriting God. God is my inheritance. The tricky and the weird thing is that God's inheritance is you. And that's what he wanted, right? So, you know, I... I when we look at that, we realize that we receive the third part of the Godhead who walks with us and helps us and breathes life into the words that we read. And as we read them, they come alive inside of our heart. And then we find ourselves doing them. Amen. That's how we walk by the Spirit. Right? And we covered that in a fair amount of detail last week. And uh, and so part of the law, and, and also in chapter 8 of Romans, it also talked about, it puts us in a position of a longing for the redemption of our bodies at the return of the Lord. All that was covered in Romans 8. Now, we all can think of, of natural reasons why getting a, a new body would be, you know, a, a, a thumbs up experience, right? I mean, we can all think of good reasons, just natural reasons. But what is a spiritual reason that we should anticipate with great joy the redemption of our body? We got a lot of natural reasons. I got aches. I got pains. I, you know, I got this. Got, and that, that, those are natural reasons and they're legitimate reasons. But what is the spiritual reason? Yeah. Bodies are corrupted with sin. It's got sin in it. There's sin and death. There are things in my body, principles in my body that generate separation from God. And so God, when we get the redemption of our body, those things won't be there anymore. Death literally will be destroyed. Now, as far as as far as the actual act of overpowering and the authority over death has already been established at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it has not been laid aside entirely because you can tell that it's still in you. It's still in his bride, right? So clearly death has got to be abolished. It's like, it's like the legal part has been done but you've been given a 30-day eviction notice, and we're still in the 30 days. But the end of the 30 days is coming, and death has got to leave the building. 
Okay, are you following? That's essentially where we're in, the time period that we're in right now. So we ended last week at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can go ahead and turn there now. And uh, we ended in, in verses 12 through 19. Now, the importance of the redemption of the body, Paul had written this portion of this letter to the Corinthian people, the Corinthian church, because he knew a distortion of the gospel had begun to take root and spread in that church. And that distortion was... One of two things, but I believe it was both because both are kind of hinted at. And that one of them is clearly stated. The other one is hinted at in the letter. And that is, uh, one thing we know for sure is that some people were teaching that the rapture had already taken place. The resurrection of the dead is already over with. Well, what does that do? It takes the hope away, right? And if you take the hope away, you've taken away the purifying effect. Amen? So this was a deadly thing to happen. There's also another possible, I can't confirm what I've ever said, but I believe it was also an issue because he spent so much time with it in the words we're about to read. And that was the notion that there is no resurrection from that. It's not just a matter of the fact that the idea that it's already happened. It never happened because it can't happen because people can't raise from the dead. So it was very likely two different groups attacking the same core problem. The result of either one is going to be the same. If you come to the conclusion, if you teach, there is no way to have the body reincarnated, though not reincarnated, that's a terrible word, um, uh, you know what I mean, um, uh, to, to resurrected into to life. If there's no way for the dead to come to life, then you've still stolen the hope. If you, if you, come to the, if you say that it's already happened, you've stolen the hope. In either case, you've still stolen the hope. And the, so obviously the objective of the enemy was to rob them of hope, and because... And, and his, his, his desire to do that was not just so they wouldn't have anything looking forward to. It was because he felt that he realized that that is the purifying effect that, um, that the body has. And so if I remove that, they'll become lackadaisical. They'll become lethargical. They'll drift back into the world. And really, I believe that has been a pattern in every church, in every heart that has ever come to know the Lord. If we, when we don't maintain this hope, it has that effect on it. I can testify of my own life then the last several weeks since the beginning of Genesis, before January, keeping this a hope live in my heart, uh, being very diligent about, which I really wasn't before, um, has had an effect on me. I think differently. I'm, I'm more excited. I'm more um, anticipating. There are things that I might have let slip that I'm not letting slip so much anymore. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's not because I'm trying harder I'm just more aware of the fact that I've been in love this whole time. You know what I mean? It's like when you're married, you are in love, but you don't always feel it, you know? You're not always living in the moment of it, right? It doesn't always dictate all of your behaviors. But the more you stir those things inside of you, the more you find yourself acting out of that love, that connection with that person it's not that it wasn't there before. It just wasn't stirred to the surface to influence action. And now it is, amen? And that's what this is happening. This is what's, what's going on. So in, um, in, in, first, in um, uh, first Corinthians 15, starting verse 12, this is what the Holy Spirit influenced, influenced Paul to argue um, along the lines of. He says, now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? So this is why I'm thinking, it wasn't just saying that the rapture was passed. I think some people were actually saying there is no resurrection, right? I mean, I think it's kind of clear here. Now, Christ is preached as raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And then our preaching is without foundation, and so is your faith. So now this, this is really a big deal because he's saying that the idea of the return of the Lord is not a peripheral doctrine. And I think it's been treated that way by the body of Christ. The big deal is that Jesus died and that he rose again and, and, and so on. And that's great. And the problem is in the church, there's been a separation between Jesus and us. Well, well, you know, and we do this a lot when it comes to do with not living a perfect life. Well, you know, that was Jesus. As though he's over there and I'm way over here. And there's a gulf there. There's never going to be a bridging of that gulf. Well, that's what salvation was, was to bridge the gulf, right? So clearly, but that mindset, I mean, can you see how that's kind of been pervasive in the body? This way of thinking that, well, you know, that's Jesus and he's perfect and he never messed up and he always heard God. He always did the right thing. And as if to say, I can't identify with that because that's not possible for me. But the truth of the matter is, it is possible for you. We've been invited into that very thing, that expectation of Christ being formed in us. And if we let go of the notion that I am predestined, is not only is it not impossible, I'm predestined to that end. And when I stop embracing that reality, Christ quits being formed in me. Amen? And, uh, and so that's, that is a, a, an insidious lie. And so... It's imperative, as I pressed this past couple of years, and it was not really with this in view that I did it, but it's imperative that we keep in our mind that if it's true of Jesus, it's true of me. If he died, I die. But that's not all. If he rose, I rise. Amen? It has got to be that way. We are koinonia with him in all things. Shared life, shared experience, he didn't die alone. I mean, he died alone, but it, uh, he's not the only one that died. It's a shared experience because I died. And, and he rose from the dead. And therefore, but he didn't, he, that he, not only him, but I rise from the dead. It's a shared experience. Amen. That's koinonia. That's what God is longing for with us. Amen. And now Jesus had to do those things alone, meaning physically nobody was with him. But you and I do not do it alone. We have not only the Father and the, and the Son, we also have <clears throat> the Holy Spirit who is with us at all times. We also have one another. We are anything but alone. He was alone. Amen. So, 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 but, so this is a foundational truth. Foundational truth, uh, you'll see in Hebrews, the uh, fifth chapter, I think it is, or maybe no, it's the sixth. The end of the fifth, then it leads into sixth. It, uh, uh, Paul says, therefore leaving the elementary principles of Christ. By elementary, it means the, the foundational, bare bones. This is the thing. You, if, you, if you go to, uh, uh, to learn a, a college class, in whatever 101 is, they're laying a foundation. If you go on to get a master's and a doctorate in that, everything that was built to get to that doctorate required whatever was taught in 101. It's the foundation, right? It's also the most simple stuff. It's the basic stuff, but it is your foundation. So it's imperative. And so Paul's saying that the doctrine of Jesus's return and our resurrection, both in our soul and in our body, is a elementary and foundational truth. And everything you build on it has got to have that as its foundation. If you start pulling bricks out from underneath that, what happens? When you compromise the foundation, 
falls, right? So this is why he's saying this is foundational. If you don't believe this, if you don't maintain this hope, then you are taking bricks out from underneath your foundation. Our preaching is without foundation and your faith becomes without foundation. Well, we don't want that. Amen. So, so going on to verse 15, it says, In addition, we are found to be false witnesses. Us apostles who've been teaching you, he says, we become false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he rose up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still dead in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have placed our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Paul is here speaking of the reward. The same reward Jesus spoke of in his promises that we went through at the beginning of last week. We read through uh, uh, several times where Jesus talked about uh, how he was going to come back. He was going to come back. He was going to come back. I read several passages about that last week. Uh, that, and, and when he came, he said, I'm bringing your reward with me. That was his words that he said literally seconds before he was caught up into the air and traveled up into heaven. He said that he was going to, actually, he's not the one that said, the angels uh, said it. They said, you know, why are you staring up into heaven? And he said, you know, the same Jesus is going to return in the same way that he left, and his reward will be with him. So, you know, so, and what is our reward? The other two-thirds of the Godhead we inherit, woo-hoo, and, and, and then also our soul Stops fighting us. It's no longer divided. It's not half, half of it is caught up in the things of the world and the other half caught up in the things of God. It becomes singularly, it's united to fear his name and our bodies, the death dies. It's abolished. It's kicked out. It's leases run out on our bodies and we come literally to life. 100% spirit, soul, and body. That's the reward. Amen. Now, so he's talking about that. And then it's also, by the way, the same reward that Hebrews talks about when he says in chapter 10, verse 35-ish through 39, he says, don't cast away your confidence, which gives great recompense of reward. But you have need of patient endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive the promise. Amen? But notice in the middle of that is you're doing something, Right? You're not just believing, you're also doing something. He says, he says that after you have done what you're supposed to do, you will receive the reward. So there's, there's an action involved in here that we have to be in, involved in, we have to be doing. Not just believing, but doing, okay? If we claim that there is no hope of a resurrection, then our faith is of no point. And as Paul stated at the beginning of, of this chapter, we have believed to no purpose. So why does this matter so much? Because the resurrection we are talking about is progressive. In Romans, the sixth chapter, you keep your finger here and you can flip over there if you want to. I'll read it to you one way or the other. You guys are familiar with enough with chapter six. You may not want to turn there. and That's fine. I don't really care. But um, I'm just, just going to visit there for a moment before we go further because that's direct implications to this. Romans 6 tells us that Jesus died once for all to sin, but forever lives unto righteousness. The death and resurrection of the body are only part of this. In fact, it is the, the, the last and final part of this. So I'm going to read it. It's in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It says, What shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Because he just got done saying in chapter 5, 
where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So he's saying, well, so what should we say to that? If I know that when I sin, grace gets greater, should I just keep on sinning? And he says, well, no, no, absolutely not. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is another way in which the rapture and the resurrection is taught. Every time you hear about baptism throughout the entire New Testament, it is a testimony of us dying with Christ and doing what? Raising with him. When, how and when do I raise with him? Well, I raise with him spiritually on the day that I make the declaration, but I raise with him in the completed form of my, of my redemption on the day he returns. So even baptism is a preaching of the return of Jesus. I, mean, I don't know if anybody else picked up on that, but I really have never really thought about that much. I thought about my own rising to new life, which was very rooted in this life. But it's also symbolic of the fact that this is the beginning of a process that's culminated at the end when my body is raised up, right? That's what baptism is also symbolic of. So, now we are buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ, just as, like manner, shared experience, right? And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing or rendered inoperative. In other words, it can't be Lord over you anymore, right? We know, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that this body of sin might be rendered inoperative, brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, enslaved means you don't have a choice. Now that you're born again, you realize you have a choice, don't you? You can make the choice to do what's right. You can make the choice to do this wrong. And, and we make uh, good and bad choices every day of our life. And they, have, they both have implications, don't they? So, But you are no longer a slave of it. Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. The shackle's gone. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know and, and, and live with him. Don't, don't be over hyperly uh, um, physically minded. We're not talking about living with him like you live with a person, okay? It means that in the same way that Christ was made alive in union with the Father, in like manner, we will be made alive with Jesus in, with, in union with the Father. We will live with him, live in union with God, with Jesus, okay? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That day's coming for you and I. When we finally do, either today or next Sunday or whatever, get to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how death is the last enemy that will be abolished, that will be kicked out of the house, all right? When that day happens, death no longer has any hold on anybody in the body of Christ ever again. Ever again, right? So, but it happened first with our Lord. That's how I know it's going to happen to me. 
verse, uh, verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin one time for all, but the life that he lives, he lives perpetually unto God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present the members of your body to God as those who have been brought up from death to life and the members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness because sin will no longer have dominion over you because you are no longer under the law, under a checklist, but you are under influence, right? You are under the influence of the Holy Spirit who's been given to you as a down payment of what's coming. Amen? Now, now Paul said, goes on in chapter 7, we're not going to read it, but Paul goes on in chapter 7 to address the conflicted nature we deal with as Christians. We have a spirit that's alive to God and a body that still has sin and death in it, and that tug of war we experience, and that's when we went to chapter 8, and we spent a lot of time with that in a couple of weeks ago. But make no mistake, if you do not participate in the death, you do not participate in the resurrection, period. Not only of the resurrection of the body, you won't even get there. If you don't participate in the death, you don't, you don't participate in the resurrection of the soul, which is the redemption, the, the, the soul salvation, where I become progressively more like Christ in the way I think and the way the decisions I make and the, and, and the way that I, 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 my whole character, right? It'll eventually culminate into my body. Now, picking back up in verse um, uh, 20 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, where we left off, but now Christ has been raised. Let's just end that discussion, Paul said, right? But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, this is another testimony. Well, what, what was, the, you guys are in a, in, a, in a great position to know what first fruits is because we, we've been through it in our Wednesday night through the Bible, right? What, what, did, what was first fruits? I'm sorry? Christ was. Well, Christ was, but in the Old Testament, what were first fruits? When we were going through the, uh, we've been going through the Bible, and remember, he began to give them the law of what they needed to do with their harvests and stuff like that. What was first fruits? Well, that's the offering to God. It was an offering to God, right? And it was, and it was from the first part of the crop that became ripe, right? And I mean, anybody who's grown stuff realizes that all of the fruit doesn't come ripe at one time, right? Uh, but that, you know, when you look all across your field or whatever, the first fruits that become ripe and ready for consumption, that was offered to God as an offering. Amen? Well, Jesus here is called the first one who became ripe. Amen? Yes. Well, what does that imply? There's a lot more coming that's going to become ripe. He's just the first of many, right? I'm part of the many, right? You're part of the many. He's just the first fruit. This is a state, another statement, another declaration that if it's true about him, it is true about me. He became ripe and was offered his entire self, who he is, to the Father God, and you and I are going to follow in like manner. So we as Christians have received, if you will, uh, 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 you can also go a little bit further with that, and that is you know, what I said earlier. We've also received the first fruits of our, God's received the first fruits of his inheritance when Christ showed up. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was the first 
human being to be put into a position of complete right standing with God. Now, he was already in right standing because he'd never sinned. But he died sinful death. He, he, the Bible says that he who knew sin became sin for us. <coughs> Excuse me, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So he became death and was risen from death. So he was the first <coughs> prince unto God. God. Jesus is the first of God's inheritance. You and I are going to be the rest of it. Well, in like manner, God's like, you know what? Okay, I've gotten part of my inheritance. Let me give some of yours to you. And he gave us the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I do not get up into heaven and present myself to Papa, I cannot send your first part. If he doesn't get his first part, you don't get your first part because everything's like, it's shared. But if Papa gets his first part, which is me, then you get your first part, which is the Holy Spirit. I will make sure I will send him to you. Amen? Do you remember that? So God, God is inheriting us. In Psalm, I was thinking about this last, uh, last night as I was writing some of these things down. In Psalm chapter 2, you can just make a note of it. You can turn there if you want to. But um, it, I, it, I remembered that the Bible talked about how God had told Jesus to ask him for the world as his inheritance. And, uh, and I knew that that existed so in the Bible, but I wasn't sure. I thought it was in the New Testament. I was wrong. It was in Psalm. I'll read it to you here. Psalm chapter, uh, chapter 2, starting in, just verse, in verse 1, says, Why do the nations rebel and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Who's the anointed one? Hmm? Who? Who was who? Jesus. Jesus. Absolutely. The anointed one was Jesus. That's what the word Messiah or the word Christ means anointed, right? He was the anointed one. The kings of the earth take their, their stance against the Lord and against his anointed one, against Jesus. Let us tear off our, their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Talking about this is the world saying about God. Let's, let's tear off their restraints. We won't let God tell us what to do, right? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heavens laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I, will have, I have consecrated my king on Zion. This is the Father God talking to the nations. Who is the Father God's established king? Jesus, right? He says, I have established and consecrated my king on Zion. Let me just go ahead and see how far I can stretch your guys' brains here, okay? Um, don't pop. Um, if you remember, a couple years back, we were looking at a, par a parable, uh, one of the parables of the talents and stuff like that, and Jesus had said, you remember, you're in the one parable, he had, he had become king, but uh, he wasn't talking about it. He was talking about himself. But in the parable, a man had become king, a ruler over an area, and he had delegated authority to certain ones. And he was going to go away for a period of time to be inaugurated in the office, and then he was going to return again. And in the meantime, these people who who were followers of him beforehand. They were already following him before he became king. So when he became king, it was an easy thing to just continue following him, right? And so he said, you know, I'm, I am king, but I've got to be officially inaugurated. So I'm going to go away. And when I'm gone away, I need you who are already following me to spread the message about me and try to get as many people to willingly submit to my leadership upon my return, Right. That was all talking about what you and I are supposed to be busy doing right now, amen? Because remember, the two we, we read earlier 
in 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 First Corinthians, it talked about how that uh, that uh, that it wasn't just a matter of just believing and having a hope of his return, but all those who were busy doing the things that you know that we're, we're supposed to be doing, that we will reap a reward. Amen. It's, it, they're tied together. It's not just believing. It's my actions that are birthed out of that belief, right? That we spent all last year talking about. So he says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. We already know that's talking about Jesus, isn't it? Right? He says, I, he said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. The father God is telling Jesus, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, we, we know that this actually had a fulfillment date in John chapter 17 when Jesus was praying what you and I call his high priestly prayer. He was praying in the middle of his prayer. He says, Father, it's my desire that those whom you have given me out of the world may be with me where I am. I want my inheritance. Amen? So this was prophesied that God was going to require this of Jesus, and Jesus did it in his high priestly prayer. He's saying, these here, and all who will believe on me through their words, I want all of them to be with me. They to be my inheritance forever. God, what Jesus wants to inherit you, right? And so, you know, and he asked, Specifically, not just for the disciples, but for everyone who will believe on him through their word. That includes you and you and you and me and all of us. He wanted you as his personal inheritance. We are getting God and God is getting us. It's an amazing, amazing wow. thing. Now, going back over here in the first Corinthians. So Paul, uh, we're picking back up in verse 21. So Paul pointing out that Jesus is dying and rising from the dead makes him the first fruits is nothing more and nothing less than Paul saying if it's true about Jesus, it's true about us. If Christ rose from the dead, so do we. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. <clears throat> this is very important. So we're not going to capitalize right now because it's not the reason for this particular message. But death did not come to the world through Eve, even though she was the first one to sin. So death entered the world through Adam, came to the world through Adam. And <clears throat> this is also an argument, if you will, just put it in your back pocket, for those who claim to believe the Bible and claim to believe in salvation, but also believe in what they call theistic evolution, that God created, but he did it through evolution. That cannot be true in salvation true. Because salvation claims that death and sin came to the world through Adam. If evolution is true, death was already here long before Adam even showed up. Right? Both can't be true. You can't claim to believe the gospel and believe theistic evolution. That's not possible. Okay? Let's just go ahead and tack that down right now. So he says here, For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through man. For just as in Adam all died, how many died? Every last one of us. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, now, let me just go ahead and throw this out there as well. See that we're, we're going to have to wind down here. And I might as well make use of the verses that we're on. I have had universalists tell me, see, that right there shows God that everybody's born again. Because everybody died in Adam, so everybody's also made alive. No, 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 no. No, that's not what the verse says. The verse says 
that everybody died in Adam. Okay? True. It also says that everyone in Christ is made alive. Not every, every human being is in Adam because they were born. The only people that are in Christ are those who were born again. Right? So the only people made alive are those that are in Christ. Are you following? But can you see how just a little twist of a scripture and all of a sudden you can change the entire doctrine so well because Jesus rose from the dead, everybody on the planet is all born again. No, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. If you're in Christ, you are. Amen? Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards at his coming. There's the rapture. At his coming, the people of Christ. So, so when does this resurrection and redemption of the bodies uh, um, that we read about in Romans 8 take place? It takes place at his coming. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he, talking about Jesus, hands the kingdom of God to the Father, or hands the kingdom to God the Father, when he, has, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, meaning all earthly, okay, expressions of it. He's not going to do away with all power because God is power. He can't do away with that. It, obviously, in context, he's talking about earthly, right? Now, I, I want us to, to see that, and we'll just address this in ending, and we'll, we'll pick up in verse 25 next week. I want you to listen to this. He says, then comes the end. Now, this is where there's a lot of people who automatically assume there's only going to be one return of the Lord, that the rapture takes place and then the end. Because this verse says, then comes the end. What does it say in verse 23? It says, but each, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards at his coming, the people of Christ, then comes the end. What well, sounds like, then comes the end. But, see, this is a problem that a lot of people don't pick up on in, in biblical prophecy. You know, a great majority of the passages of the Old Testament, of Old Testament prophecy, didn't talk about the age of the Gentiles, meaning the age you and I live in right now. It was all Jew, 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 Jew. Very, there's not a whole lot of mention of Gentiles. There are some prophecies that talk about the Gentiles, talk about the age of the Gentiles, but the great majority of the prophecies didn't mention the Gentiles. And the reason why is because the whole thing was written to Jews, right? And secondarily, it's because God was trying to set them up, even though God knew it wasn't going to happen. God tries to set, God does everything he can do to set us up for success, even though he knows we're going to fail, okay? What God wanted was for the Jewish nation to embrace their Messiah, which we know did not happen right? And in embracing their Messiah, make begin to worship him and serve him as their king, which would have enraged Rome, and Rome would have crucified him, not the Jews, right? And that at his resurrection, the Jews would have been the greatest evangelist this world has ever known, and the Gentiles would have been brought to the gospel through the Jews as a nation. God knew he wasn't going to get that. But he tried to lay the facts out as though that was the reality. So he didn't even mention the time of the Gentiles most of the time. Daniel brings it up. A few other places brings it up. It's brought up in the book of Psalm. Talks about the Gentiles coming in. But most of the prophecies just kind of skip that. It's like a little speed bump. It just kind of skips over and just says, you know, that the Messiah comes and then he begins his rule and reign over Israel and doesn't mention this. Well, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. 
It is mentioned in some passages. You see what I'm saying? So just because in one verse it doesn't mention it doesn't mean it's not mentioned throughout the rest of the body of the New Testament. So this verse alone is not a great example to use to say that then comes the end means then comes exactly chronological order. That's the very next thing that happens. It just means that after this comes the end. Well, you could have two or three things happen before that, and it's still, the end is still this. Are you following? So, you know, so the end is still going to be verse 24. When he comes, uh, uh, then comes the end when he hands the kingdom over to God. And he puts a rule, an end to all rule and all authority, right? Well, you and I already know that that's not going to happen immediately after the rapture. Don't we? Re we do know that there's going to be an antichrist, and he's going to rule over at least a portion of this planet. If at the rapture, then came the end instantly, without the time of the Gentiles, without the time of the uh, of the antichrist and the time of the beast and all that, which is all prophesied in Daniel. Daniel talks about this gap of time. And so, you know, it's not that Paul's unaware of it, he just doesn't bring it up here because it really wasn't the point he was getting at. You see what I'm saying? So I, I just want to make that point that, you know, you have to be very careful in Scripture. When you read something, make sure you take the whole counsel of God's Word, not just a portion of it. Amen? Does that make sense to you? Because this passage was just getting to a point. It's still true regardless of how you read it. At His coming, uh, it says, it says uh, that... Um, in verse 23, but each in their turn, Christ the firstfruits, after that, at his coming, the people of God, then comes the end. Well, yeah, it does. It doesn't mean that the next thing to happen is going to be the final end. It just means it's after this that the end will come. Meaning, in other words, the, the, end, the end will not have arrived until this has taken place. And you see, Jesus said this many times in his ministry. He said, you know, I don't want you to be concerned about this and the other thing because the end is not yet. Right? He said it that way. Paul said, then comes the end. It, maybe it might have been better for him to say, the end is not yet. Who cares? But the bottom line is the end result is the same. The idea is that these kind of things are going to predate the end. He was not trying to say in chronological order the very next step is the end. Okay? We know that because there's a copious amount of scripture, copious amount of scripture that shows the time of, of, of the Antichrist and the seven years of tribulation and all that about the wedding feast of the Lamb and us coming down and coming down on the earth and declaring war and Christ setting up a kingdom for a thousand years. All of that is between verse 23 and verse 24. He's just not mentioning it here. So now I just want to throw that out there in closing so that you, you had that in your context so you didn't think, because that could easily trip you up and I want it to. And I just use the Old Testament as examples because the Old Testament, like I said, for the most part, doesn't talk about the time of the Gentiles, though we know it exists because we're in it, right? Paul talks about it. He, said, he made the declaration to the Jews. He said, seeing that you judge, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we turn now to the Gentiles. And the gospel began to be preached to the Gentiles. Isn't that right? And it was still in that time period. Romans, the book of Romans talks about how the Jews had been set aside for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. After the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God's circling back around Israel, right? Amen? Thank God, because God's going to get what he wanted with Israel. So uh, so today, what we the, the takeaways were that we already knew that there was, that the two main things that we maintained this hope, uh, this uh, the awareness, our eyes fixed upon his return for, is because it offers us a great hope, which stirs us, that gives us a motivation, amen? And that motivation purifies us, right? Also, that 
Over and over again through these passages, he's made it clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and our raising with him is a foundational doctrine. If you remove it, then the gospel is not only true, not true, but your faith is worthless. So he was really going through great pains to stress how important maintaining thoughts about this are. It's very important. So your takeaway of how to apply this is do it. Think about it. Keep your minds on the return of the Lord. Keep your minds on the fact that we have a king who we worship who said, I'm going to go away and I'm also coming back, right? And you are to stay busy doing the work of the kingdom, spreading my rule and my reign both in your heart and the hearts of the people you encounter until I return, right? And when you do, when I do return, I'm bringing my reward with me. Amen? And this is one of the things that gives us great hope, and it keeps us purifying ourselves. Amen? So we don't have these long gaps of a lack of diligence, and we feel like, oh, gosh, I can't believe I did this again. And Father God, I, I need to, uh, we just become wrecked, and we just, God, God, just stir my heart again, and help me to get back where I need to be. We stop being on again, off again, on again, off again, and just stay on. Amen? So. Great. Grace. Grace. Grace.